Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. I say this calls for action, and now, nip it in the bud. Well, what I do is uh, I look a woman up and down, and I say, Hey, how you doing? And I hope you're doing well, everybody. This is Jim McCarrens with The Good, The Bad, and The TV on the Believe Podcast Network. It's the number one podcast network for professionals. How do I know that? Because I wrote it right in front of me. Now let's believe in the good, the bad, and the TV. The year is 2007. And that sound you're hearing is the housing bubble bursting. 2007 marks an economic downturn not seen since the Great Depression. 2007 is also the year of the final installment of the Harry Potter books, of Barry Bonds breaking Hank Aaron's home run record, of Al Gore awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for his work related to something called climate change. That term will stick around. It's also the year of a school shooting on the Virginia Tech campus resulting in 32 dead, 27 students and five faculty, followed by all kinds of questions like why and how and what now. Those questions will stick around too. Barbara Morgan's in the news in 2007. She's the former school teacher from Idaho, now aboard the Endeavor, as the space shuttle heads to resupply and work on the International Space Station. Question, how else do we know the name Barbara Morgan? Answer, she was Krista McAuliffe's teacher in space backup 21 years ago for the ill-fated space shuttle mission called Challenger. 2007 is the year of the first iPhone, the first minimum wage hike in 10 years from 5.15 an hour to 5.85. The first woman Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi. The first Oscar for Martin Scorsese for The Departed. The first induction of hip-hop artists into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, Grandmaster Flash and The Furious Five. And on June 10th, the last episode of HBO's mob drama, The Sopranos. The final minutes of which caused the world to stop in its orbit and to induce more real-world trauma and need for counseling than the series ever depicts in its fictional therapy universe. In the 1990s, the now 20-year-old HBO is still chiefly known for airing movies and specials, with occasional low-profile original scripted series, such as the excellent Dream On. As the decade closes, the premium service goes all-in as it introduces a pair of game-changing series to take on and to carve into, what's still a broadcast network-dominated TV landscape. The half-hour chick-com Sex in the City begins in 1998, and David Chase's The Sopranos arrives in 1999. Each rewrites the rules of cable, premium or not, when it comes to attracting mass audiences, or in the case of The Sopranos, rabid mass audiences, because this thing takes hold and then takes off. It's the first primetime weekly drama outside of traditional network television that has execs there looking at HBO as direct competition. Over the course of the next eight years, The Sopranos runs 86 episodes. It wins viewers, critics, and 21 Emmys out of an astounding 112 nominations. Along with The Wire, which comes to HBO in 2002, it's called one of TV's best ever dramas, literate, Sobering, erudite, crude, rough, funny, insightful, intelligent, dense, daring, and very, very watched. Made in America is its two-part sixth season ender and series finale. 
written and directed by creator David Chase. It does air June 10th. It's highly anticipated, wrapping up some threads and exposing and then pulling on new ones, as it spins a story predicated on lead mob character Tony Soprano in hiding. 50 minutes or so into the 54-minute episode, with Tony and wife Carmela and son AJ seated at Holston's Diner, a familiar spot, uh, they're awaiting the arrival of daughter Meadow, and with Journey's Don't Stop Believing playing on the tabletop jukebox, achingly and excruciatingly timing out the scene, beat by beat, there's a familiar bell ring that signals someone's coming through the front door of the place, followed by toning up, Tony looking up to note who it might be, and then the screen goes black. Mid don't stop, and no one's believing. It's over. The end. Fade to black forever. Scores of viewers watching live this night actually think that their cable has gone out, and they call their providers to grouse. How can you leave us hanging like this, they scream, just as the series is about to end. But it's no tech issue. It has. And then, days of online rage and confusion, followed by years and years and years of debate and criticism and praise and headlines and questions about what it all means. Essays, reviews, college papers, book chapters, watercolor discussions, Rewatching parties, online rehashes. Is it Meadow at the door? Is Tony dead at the hand of whoever it is if it's not Meadow? Does the guy we see in the scene heading into the john right before we hear the bell signal something? Is the whole episode some kind of dream? Represent some kind of fugue state for creator David Chase? A kind of middle finger to his fans? Well, yes. No. Maybe. We never know. Because amid all the analysis, which shows a hold and a passion to rival that of who really killed JFK, Chase begs off any real helpful explanation. Made in America is likely the most talked about series ending in modern TV history, but there are scores of others through the years that generate passion and talk too, triggering their own waves of attention, creating their own moments of zeitgeist, some achieving levels of infamy even beyond those of the series they punctuate. Back in 1988, NBC's long-running medical drama St. Elsewhere wraps up a six award-winning, sometimes metaphysical seasons with a minute 44-second scene that suggests the entire 137-episode run of the show has taken place inside the mind of an autistic boy, played by the kid we've come to know in the show as the young autistic son of Dr. Donald Westfall. Like that of The Sopranos, it confuses and amuses and even angers, and it also leads to years, now decades, of debates and theories. Though in the end, almost everyone agrees, loyal viewers and critics alike, the episode, entitled The Last One, back in an era when the finale is not all that much a TV trope as it is today, stands out as one of primetime's most brilliant efforts. St. Elsewhere ends in the same way it runs all those years thoughtfully, emotionally, addressing the human spirit. The 2019 ending for HBO's huge hit Game of Thrones, called The Iron Throne, which revolves around the main characters dealing with the aftermath of the devastation of King's Landing, also leaves fans and critics royally divided, though disappointment is a common thread. 
Many fans storm the social media palace with complaints of what they see as its blandness, its lack of resolution. Still, it's Game of Thrones' highest rated episode, and not for nothing, it's also the most watched thing HBO ever airs. ABC's Lost, HBO's Six Feet Under, NBC's ER, Sci-Fi's Battlestar Galactica, AMC's Breaking Bad, FX's The Americans, all join it as examples of long-running serialized dramas with passionate fan bases that leave the air with fanfare and intrigue, generating heat and discussion, stirring emotions and occasionally anger to the bitter end. Among them, Breaking Bad's last chapter is probably the most riveting, the most satisfying, the most talked about, the most hailed. If finales such as these are seen as examples of a strictly modern-day trend, two words, the fugitive. Back in the 1960s, long before wrap-ups become routine, and after three seasons worth of running, David Jansen's Dr. Richard Kimball, still on the lam after being falsely accused and convicted of murdering his wife, finally catches the one-armed man who actually did. And then it's mano a mano to the very end. So highly satisfying in the way it would feel if Wiley e. Coyote finally nabbed the Roadrunner. The concluding episode of The Fugitive, known as The Day the Running Stopped, sets viewing audience records in late August 1967. 20 years later, CBS's long-running Magnum P.I. series kills off lead character Thomas Magnum, well, sort of, in what's supposed to be its own series finale, an episode called Limbo at the end of the seventh season. But the finale becomes a cliffhanger when the show ends up coming back for another, and this time really, final season. Through the decades, sitcoms, traditionally less serialized or with fewer threads slash storylines to pull together when they themselves wrap up, or which are canceled before finales can be written, don't usually have finales. I Love Lucy, The Beverly Hillbillies, The Adventures of Ozzie and Harriet, Gomer Pyle, Bewitched, each of these just sort of ends when it ends, which isn't such a bad thing, I guess. Though the 1966 finale of the five-year-old Dick Van Dyke show does close a chapter in a way that it features lead character, uh, comedy writer Rob Petrie selling his long-in-the-writing memoir to boss Alan Brady, who wants to turn it into a sitcom. Spoiler alert. It's the last to air, but it's not the last to be filmed. The idea of the storyline wrapping finale, farewell, episode, mostly takes off in the 1970s, notably with the Mary Tyler Moore show. Unlike latter-day series that will artificially inflate the lengths of their finale episodes and thus the importance of their shows, the Mary Tyler Moore show manages to wrap up its seven-season run with a regular half-hour-length outing that salutes the roots of the DNA of the show about a longtime struggling news program and its staff. It finds WJM-TV management fed up with the low ratings, firing the entire news staff, including star Mary Tyler Moore, who plays Mary Richards. It fires the entire staff except for the incompetent Ted Baxter, the anchorman, who of course is the reason for the low ratings. In the 1980s, the idea of a series finale taking a toehold in the TV landscape Long-running sitcoms Alice, Barney Miller, Happy Days, and Family Ties join MASH in presenting highly publicized and emotional story-closing finales. Though MASH, 
definitely sort of gilds the lily in 1983 with a bloated and frankly boring advertiser-friendly two-and-a-half-hour episode redeemed only by its heartstrings ending that sees Alan Ald as Dr. Hawkeye Pierce leaving the MASH compound by helicopter and taking notice that best friend B.J. Honeycutt, who's been resistant to say the word goodbye to him up till now, had used rocks to spell out the word goodbye on the landscape below. It was sweet. Like MASH, Cheers wraps up an 11th season run a decade later, in 1993, <clears throat> excuse me, with an expanded, mostly well-received episode that finds barkeep Sam Malone offering his own goodbye to on-again, off-again romantic partner Diane Chambers. It's good, but here too, it's overly long and a bit self-important, which by this point is becoming routine. Designed to get attention and, of course, ratings, these finales tend to sag with the importance of star or producer self-inflation the need to be about something, to send a message. In the end, they tend to devalue the lawyer viewership behind them. We're looking at you, mad about you, Seinfeld and Roseanne. But TV fans from here to Vermont know that the best, most famous, most effective, most clever, most memorable, most honorable sitcom finale ever happens in May of 1990, the one for CBS's long-running sitcom Newhart. In a case of meta being meta before meta was cool, it ends with star Bob Newhart falling unconscious from a bean to the head and then waking up in his previous CBS series, The Bob Newhart Show, which ended 12 years earlier. Same uh, title, same bed, same wife beside him. 1970s Bob Hartley has dreamt his entire eight-year run as 1980s Dick Loudon. Shot months earlier and sometime, somehow, kept secret until almost airtime, the reveal results in the studio audience screaming in surprise and then appreciation. So too does the audience at home. And then the 1990 new art show is played out by the theme music from the 1970s one. Bada bing, Tony Soprano. By the way, all these years removed from the controversial final installment of The Sopranos in 2007, Here's a reminder. Yes, Journeys Don't Stop Believing does underscore the scene, but let us not forget that when Tony is flipping through the menu of choices on the tabletop, ju tabletop jukebox, we see that the selection also offers a B-side, Any Way You Want It, by Journey, which would seem to be David Chase's suggestion for how we interpret the scene. You gotta believe. Hey, send us some questions and feedback and suggestions on Twitter at, at Believe Podcast or at Believe.com. That's also where you can get some information on advertising on any Believe show, but especially mine. Mistakes and all. Find and download The Good, The Bad, and The TV on Apple, where you can subscribe and rate us, or Spotify, where you can follow us. Or just plain listen to a new drop each Thursday on these sites, or Stitcher, or Luminary, or TuneIn, or Google Play. Be sure to like the show all the hell over social media, too. I'm Jim McCairns. We'll talk again. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. 
And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.